Hi, and welcome to the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. I'm interview editor Lucy Schmitz. Recently, I had a chance to sit down with E.J. Dion. E.J. Dion writes about politics in a twice-weekly column for the Washington Post. He's also a university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University, working with both the McCourt School of Public Policy and the Department of Government. He is also a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and is a frequent commentator on politics for National Public Radio and MSNBC. Before joining the Post in 1990 as a political reporter, Dion spent 14 years at the New York Times, where he covered politics and reported from Albany, Washington, Paris, Rome, and Beirut. From 2014 to 2015, Dion was the vice president of the American Political Science Association. He is the author of seven books. His most recent are One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported, and Why the Right Went Wrong, Conservatism from Goldwater to the Tea Party and Beyond. Hope you enjoy our conversation. I want to jump right in by talking about some of your recent columns. Just today, April 15th, you wrote about uh, how the Democrats are more divided in part because they're more diverse than the Republican Party, and that the Republican Party could learn to be a little bit less homogenous. You mentioned that the Republicans still seem to be totally unified behind Trump, and I wondered if you could... uh, Talk a little bit about that and about the tenor of the Republican Party today. Right. Well, the, the argument of the column was because we've been talking so much about Democrats uh, feuding with each other over single-payer health care versus other approaches to universal coverage, exactly what should be in the Green New Deal, attitudes toward immigration, a whole bunch of issues. You know, there's always the most cliched headline in history, Democrats in disarray. <laughs> And I wanted to make the case that this is not surprising and is a kind of permanent state of the Democratic Party because they are so diverse. They are far more diverse than the Republicans ethnically, racially, religiously, and in almost every, and ideologically especially. You know, I wrote the column in response to the fact that there were a lot of stories about the Democrats being at each other's throats on all manner of issues, whether you're for single payer or some other approach to universal coverage, what should be in the Green New Deal, arguments about immigration. They couldn't really get a budget through uh, for a while. Um, And I argued, yes, of course, they are going to be more divided and people, they'll have to learn to live with that, that, um, you know, ideologically, 51 percent of Democrats see themselves as liberal uh, now, that's higher than it was a quarter century ago, but that is far less uniform than a Republican Party that is 73 percent, according to total membership, conservative. And so in the column, I argued that Democrats need to learn the virtues of forbearance, uh, which is patient self-control, restraint, and tolerance. And then in particular, uh, they shouldn't uh, confuse goals with means. You know, I'm not with those who say there shouldn't be any litmus tests. Of course, there are litmus tests. Um, But the goal should be the litmus test, not the means. Uh, It's legit to say, if you're a Democrat, that every Democrat should be for giving everyone health insurance. It should not be a litmus test that you can only do it by going through single payer. But then at the same time that I argue Democrats need more forbearance, Republicans need less forbearance with Donald Trump. I make the point that the Republican Party 
is exceptionally weak among young people. In the last elections, in the congressional races, the Republicans got 32% of the vote among Americans under 30. And I asked the question of, of Republicans about their loyalty to Trump, um, you know, what are you going to do with the wreckage of this administration? You are going to face a problem for a long time, I believe they will, um, if they maintain this loyalty to Trump. Uh, the problem is the party is so uniform, so monocultural and mono-ideological um, that um, it's hard to see any Republican breaking. As a Red Sox fan, I couldn't resist saying that Republican politicians seem as likely to break with Trump as a Massachusetts politician is to announce him or herself as a Yankees fan. Um, speaking of sort of the monolithicness of the Republican Party, I feel like we often talk about uh, Trump supporters as being predominantly from the white working class, which may be to some extent true. But in class, you often point out that that isn't necessarily the case and that he did receive majorities among other white groups that are wealthier, that are more educated. And um, can you speak a little bit about why and how middle class and wealthy people support Trump and um, and how they're being spoken to by his rhetoric and by his presidency now? Yeah, one statistic that people don't talk about very much is that 59% of college-educated white men voted for Donald Trump and that the core Trump constituency, without whom he couldn't have won the election, were traditional Republican conservatives, which includes an awful lot of very well-off um, uh, people. Um, he got 90% of the self-described Republican vote, 80% of the self-described conservative vote. And there are a lot of well-off uh, people in the country, well-educated people in the country, uh, who support Trump because they want lower taxes, they want less regulation, and they want more conservative judges. We focus on the white working class because they were important in helping Trump win his narrow victories in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, which gave him uh, the White House. But the swings in you know, white non-college voters, which is we use the education uh, polling as a kind of stand-in because we have imperfect numbers in terms of uh, defining class. But um, the difference between in, in the key states between Hillary Clinton's vote uh, and Obama's vote among the white non-college voters, about 10 or 12 percent. That was it. That, uh, you know, the Wisconsin is a number that sticks in my head. Obama got 45 percent of the white non-college vote in Wisconsin. Hillary got 34 percent. That swing was critical because it gave him, it gave Trump that narrow edge in Wisconsin. Um, so there's a reason politically why we focus on the white working class, but we should not pretend or act as if, um, you know, the Trump constituency is a recreation of the old AFL-CIO. It's not. Speaking of, though, that, that white working class demographic, how do you think Democratic candidates in 2020 can speak to that without seeming opportunistic and insincere? Can well, speak to that group, rather. There's a brilliant uh, political scientist called Nancy Fraser who uh, has written about how progressive politics is now about two things, and they're both legitimate uh, goals. One is redistribution, uh, and the other is recognition, and that if you're a progressive, you have to worry about both. 
And so um, oppressed minority groups or groups that have faced severe discrimination in the past, including women, including African-Americans, including Latinos, are demanding a uh, a recognition and uh, equality along the lines of either gender or race or ethnicity. That is a legitimate demand. That does not render illegitimate demands for greater equality along class lines. Um, and I think that progressives have, are having a hard time, and, and I don't blame them for this because it's, um, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, uh, but they have to figure out how to do the politics of recognition and the politics of redistribution at the same time so that I do not think it's a sellout for a progressive to say that the economy is unfair to the working class, whether they be Latino or African-American or white. Uh, you can say that without in any way uh, giving any ground on racial equality or gender equality. And I think that Democrats have to figure out figure that out. I get um, I sort of end up disagreeing with two kinds of arguments you hear a lot. One is we have to get rid of identity politics. Well, A, all politics is to some degree about identity. And B, that very phrase only tends to be used with respect to groups who have suffered some earlier oppression. But I also get impatient with people who say it's, it's wrong to go after the white working class. Since when um, is the white working class a privileged group? Yes, they have certain privileges because of their skin color compared to a lot of African Americans, but they suffer from other injuries. There was a book written years ago called The Hidden Injuries of Class. And so I think that if you're progressive, you have to be attentive to the injuries of race and the injuries of gender, um, the injuries of prejudice against LGBTQ people, but you also have to be concerned about the injuries of class. And you can worry about all those things at the same time, even if that gives you a lot of responsibilities. <laughs> certainly does. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how you see Trump fitting into the larger ideological journey of the right wing over the last several decades? Or how, how you think, basically how you think he, the party got to a place where he would appeal to them? There, there is sort of a large argument and a sort of smaller argument about why Trump did this. I'll make the smaller argument first. <laughs> I always thought that in um, 2016, the other Republican candidates suffered from a kind of tragedy of the commons uh, because uh, all the other Republican candidates felt one or the other of two things, either like Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Chris Christie, they felt, if I can only be the last person standing against Trump, I can win because most of the party doesn't, uh, you know, wants to vote for somebody over Trump. So they didn't go after Trump early on. Ted Cruz, on the other end, said, I want to get into the race against Jeb or Marco Rubio or Christie because when Trump fails, I'll get Trump's supporters. So you had a whole campaign go for a long time before the Republican Party realized, oh, my God, this guy can win the nomination. And by then it was too late. Um, and so Trump won the nomination that way. Uh, and, and also, I think there was an incidental and very important fact, which is that in a New Hampshire debate, Chris Christie essentially destroyed Marco Rubio's 
chances. Uh, remember, Cruz had won in Iowa. If Rubio had prevailed in New Hampshire, which it looked like he was going to do or had a good shot of doing until that debate, I think then Trump might have been finished. So that's on the one side. But the larger story is of a Republican Party that has shifted farther and farther right uh, over the last 30 years. I cited the number that 73% of Republicans called themselves conservative. Back in 1994, that number was 58%. That's still a majority. It was still a more conservative party than Democrats were liberal. But that's a huge shift. Secondly, um, Republicans were, as it were, very permissive toward um, expressions of bigotry by Trump toward Obama, the whole birther movement. The, the leadership tend to say, oh, we don't really uh, believe that. But then John Boehner said something to the effect of people are free to believe what they want. I'm not going to get in their way. Mitt Romney, who has given some great speeches against Trump, welcomed his support in 2012. The Republican Party had already begun shifting right on immigration when President George W. Bush tried to get immigration reform through Congress, and it was killed by Republican votes. So Trump reflects something that's been happening in the Republican Party for a very long period of time. So there were incidental factors, but I think he does reflect a trend in the party. And now he's pushed that farther along because a lot of not only moderates, but more moderate conservatives have started leaving the party which is one reason why Trump has such high approval ratings among Republicans, which is a number of Republicans who would oppose him in the electorate no longer think they're Republican. He's so become synonymous with the party. That right. He, yeah. You've talked a little bit about how the party has moved rightward over the past decades, but we've also talked, at least in class, a little bit about how um, – the right wing has hijacked the language around family and family values and faith, especially, such that those words denote that somebody is necessarily conservative. You know, if you're if you're talking about faith, you're probably a Republican. How has the conservative part of the political spectrum been able to fully take over that language? And to what extent can or should Democratic candidates in 2020 try to take some of that? Well, this is an argument that we've been having for a very, very long time. Back in the 2004 election, there was a famous exit poll finding where voters who clicked the box moral values voted for George W. Bush over John Kerry by about four to one, as I remember the numbers. Now, there were all kinds of critiques of that question. Some people clicked the war in Iraq or education or the economy. Well, there were a lot of those folks who had moral views about the war or the economy. But it was taken as a stand-in for religious people and particularly religious conservatives. And I argued at the time that a lot of Democrats discovered God in the exit polls mm -hmm. uh, when they realized George Bush's success in consolidating the evangelical vote, white evangelical vote. And there was a lot of very interesting work done in progressive circles between 2004 and 2008. Uh, Jim Wallace, the great progressive evangelical, uh, wrote a book uh, called God's Politics, uh, where the subtitle was a wonderful subtitle. It's why the right gets it wrong and the left doesn't get it. And you had Barack Obama give an extraordinary speech in 2006 to Jim's conference called the Renewal Conference, which... I think, and, and some of my conservative friends actually agree with this, is one of the best speeches a politician has given about religion and public life in uh, recent years, and actually over a pretty long period. 
Um, once Obama won, I think the, the left left, as it were, left the field again. Um, there were some good people like Jim, like um, people at Faith and Public Life, like other groups who stayed at it. But I think the party, a lot of people in the party felt, well, we won this election. Now we can sort of let this go. But there's also a push-pull effect going on where, particularly among young people, particularly in your generation, religion itself has gotten so associated with right-wing thought and particularly with opposition to LGBTQ rights that a lot of young people have been turned off to religion itself. And the Democratic Party has a very hard time on this issue because they have such a profoundly diverse coalition when it comes to race. They have the least religious people in the country, people who essentially say they are not affiliated with any religious institution. And they have the most religious people in the country by many measures, African-Americans. And then they have a lot of other voters in between, whereas the Republican Party is overwhelmingly white and Christian. So I think that at various moments, there's been a reluctance of some Democratic candidates to talk about faith for fear of blowing up their coalition, for fear of turning off their younger, more secular constituency. And I think Hillary Clinton ended up doing herself a disservice because she is a very serious, socially conscious Methodist and has can speak about religion, has spoken about religion in a very moving, personal way. I thought it actually was, you know, people always talked about whether she's authentic. She always sounded, had a real voice of authenticity when she talked about her faith. And I, from everything I understand, she was discouraged from doing this by some people in the party. Now you have some candidates and leading figures who are once again saying, it's time to talk about faith. Pete Buttigieg has spoken about it in a fascinating and powerful way, and it's particularly powerful precisely because he is a married gay man, and by the way, a military veteran, who got married in an Episcopal church. And he had this great colloquy with uh, uh, over, you know, a, a kind of argument with Mike Pence saying that if your problem is not with me, meaning as a gay person, your problem is with my creator. You haven't heard that kind of language uh, in that argument. You also have Cory Booker, who speaks very movingly about his faith. Interestingly, Elizabeth Warren has done it. I actually did an interview with her back in 2012 uh, where she spoke very powerfully about the importance of her Methodist faith um, in her view of social justice and the role of Matthew 25. And I'm hoping she uh, will talk about it. And then Stacey Abrams, if you uh, remember her reply to President Trump's State of the Union message. And there was a very powerful religious theme in there. So I am hoping that with leaders like this in the party being so outspoken, there'll be a chance to rejoin this conversation again, because not only do we need it as a country, but I often say to my conservative religious friends that it really isn't good for faith to be identified with one political party, because there are an awful lot of people who might be open to faith who are very turned off when it becomes this connected to a very particular ideology. Leading into 2020, we've already seen Trump attack certain Democratic hopefuls with racist and sexist rhetoric. How do you think candidates will be most effective in responding to Trumpism, sort of through a Warren adversarial approach or Booker unity and love approach or somewhere in between? What do you, what do you think will be most effective? 
Well, as our listeners should know, we had a great discussion of this very question in class uh, today. I think that a successful opponent of Trump has to find language, has to find an approach that demonstrates strength, a willingness to take him on directly, but to do so as part of a promise uh, to create a different kind of politics. I liked the Pete Buttigieg line that people are tired of this approach and let, now we are changing the channel. And I think that's an instinct that um, that a lot of people have. And I think that um, there are two temptations um, uh, which are to speak to just one half of this imperative, either to be constantly on the attack and not to be as somehow to be unprincipled or to preach a language of love and togetherness without a sense that you can stand up to Trump. And I think there is a way in which we need that to come together. I think people forget that one of the great unifying speeches of all times, Barack Obama's, there's not a red America or a blue America, there's the United States of America. That speech was actually a critique and an attack on President George W. Bush and Karl Rove for dividing the country. And so it was a call for unity that was also a forceful pushback against a certain kind of politics that Obama was describing. We remember the red and the blue part, uh, and let's come together. We forget that it was an implicit and at times explicit critique of what had been happening up to that point. And I think that is the kind of approach that people are going to have to come to because there are plenty of voters, including, I think, quite progressive voters, who just don't like politics to be carried out in this way. I think there are a lot of voters who don't like having politics in your face all the time, even people like me who love politics. I wrote uh, about a year ago that I was grateful that my dear Boston Celtics did so well last year because I could switch to watching the NBA. And if I couldn't see the Celtics, you could always see the genius of the Golden State Warriors, whom I'm going to root against if the Celtics ever get against them. But you know, I was grateful for the NBA because I could just switch off politics and uh, uh, watch something else. I think there are a lot of people who are switching to the cooking channel or more drama or watching Netflix uh, because they are tired of politics like this. And you can feel that way and still love politics, which I do. In fact, I think if you love politics, it's hard to love the way it is now. You mentioned earlier that you weren't sure how the Republican Party was going to realign or adjust post-Trump. What do you think is going to happen as a predictor? What do you think the Republican Party will become once Trump is a lame duck, either this coming cycle or the next? I always say that at about midnight on election night of 2016, I turned in my membership card in the pundits union because I never foresaw Donald Trump's victory. So all my predictions should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, I think that the Republican Party is going to have to suffer a decisive defeat before there can be another argument in the party, before people can step up and say, we have to move in a more moderate direction. I think over time this will happen simply through generational change. The Republican Party has a big problem now and, and an even bigger problem in the future because it is so dependent on the votes of older people, of uh, people my age. And essentially, there's a kind of break point at around 50 in the electorate. 45 or 50 people younger than that are pretty 
strongly anti-Republican, if not in all cases overwhelmingly pro-Democratic, but they tend to, certainly you saw this in the midterms, where there's a real break at age 45. And I'm hoping that younger people and the, the wishes of a younger electorate will simply force the Republican Party in a somewhat different direction if they want to survive. I think there are some Republicans who are being quiet now who would like to move the party in a different direction, but they are terrified of the nature of the Republican primary electorate. I mean, take a Republican like Mark Sanford. Mark Sanford was a very loyal conservative for a long time, and because he was a little bit too anti-Trump, he lost a Republican primary. A lot of Republicans look at Mark Sanford and say, oh my God, I can be that conservative and still lose if I take on Trump. And so they're scared, and you don't make the best decisions when you're scared. So I think it'll take a while. Speaking of taking on Trump, I think a lot of Democrats have a lot of hope and maybe still do hold hope uh, for the Mueller report, which is expected to uh, be released in the coming days, any minute. How do you plan to read the Mueller report, and what will you be looking for? I'm glad you didn't ask me for a prediction, no because prediction. by the no time prediction. this goes on the air, my prediction will be proven either right or very possibly wrong. No, I think uh, well, the first thing we're going to look at is it's whether it's the Mueller report or whether it's the Mueller report as interpreted through Attorney General Barr's redactions. And so the first big issue is how much does he cut out and why? Um, and if the redactions are um, extreme or even if anything that is remotely damaging to Trump is cut out, uh, we're going to have another hell-to-pay moment because Democrats are going to press for a whole lot more. I suspect they're going to call Mueller himself uh, to testify to judiciary or intelligence or both. And so I think that that is the biggest question is what will Attorney General Barr let us all read? And I, one sense from these leaks uh, from Mueller staffers is that there is material there that's damaging to the president. We don't know whether it justifies impeachment. Uh, what we do know is that Mueller said that um, he was not exonerating uh, Trump on obstruction of justice. What does he say about that? How does he describe the Russian interference effort? Does he describe a lot of participation by Trump campaign officials, even if he decided that it wasn't actionable as criminal conspiracy. We're going to learn a lot by Thursday. And how much, of course, we, we think we could learn a lot by Thursday, depending on how much Attorney General Barr lets us learn. How do you think Democratic candidates should frame their opposition to Trump in the primary season, where so much of the Democratic base is really anti-Trump versus in the general election? I don't think it hurts Democrats in the general election or in the primary to explain why Donald Trump doesn't deserve re-election. And in making that argument, I think there are a whole series of things they can point to beyond the whole Russian issue. I think one of the biggest arguments you're going to hear Democrats make is President Trump was the person who said that the forgotten men and women of America are forgotten no more. And while the economy is good, 
um, I think Democrats will ask people in some of those areas that voted for Trump in those three key states, especially, are you really better off now? Uh, has, has your income improved? Has your access to health care improved? Or has it only improved because of Obamacare be, that Trump wants to repeal? I think there will be a lot of conversation about the administration's attitude toward the environment and climate change. I think there'll be a lot of discussion of corruption and Trump's refusal to separate himself from his businesses. I think all those things are legitimate. However, I think simply doing that is not enough. And for the most part, like the congressional candidates in 2018, a lot of these Democrats are talking about a much broader agenda beyond Trump. They are talking a lot about health care, a lot about climate, a lot about democratization. Again, uh, we're talking the day after Pete Buttigieg's announcement. I think his framing of how the Democrats need to recapture the words and the concepts behind them, freedom and security, is important. And I think the emphasis on democracy is important. Uh, H.R. 1, recall, was a fundamental reform bill designed to contain corruption, contain the power of money in politics, and restore voting rights and expand access to the ballot. I think those are really powerful arguments that they have to make. So Democrats have to argue that the country needs to move in a different direction. Trump has a lot to do with that, but he doesn't have everything to do with that. There are other aspects of that they need to talk about. And I think they will, and I think they are. How do you think your role as a columnist and pundit, if you want to even use that language, will be different during this coming election cycle than it was in 2016? I'm not sure it will be fundamentally different. It's obviously been different because Donald Trump is president. And for those of us who really think that President Trump has presented the country with a kind of national emergency that comes not simply from policies we disagree with, but from a sense that in rejecting a whole series of traditional political norms in speaking so positively of authoritarian leaders and showing an authoritarian side himself um, that he presents a challenge to democracy itself. And so, you know, I've been very clear about my belief in that, uh, that, that this is my view. Um, two colleagues and I wrote a book talking about this, our, our book, One Nation After Trump. I think that what may be different is that thanks to Trump, and if this is something good that can come out of the Trump presidency, so be it, I think Trump reminded a lot of people that there are many parts of the country that were hammered by economic change over the last 20 years. And as a progressive, one of my obsessions is to figure out how we can talk in the same way to white working class people in places like Reading or Erie, Pennsylvania, and African Americans in inner city neighborhoods that have also been hammered and have been hammered over the last 30 years, how can we make a case that there are, the failure to deal with economic change in a constructive way and the failure to help people move forward and the failure to change policies that were tilting our economy toward the best off, these policies are bad for both white working class people in writing and inner city folks in Philadelphia and all kinds of other communities across the country. And we desperately need a, a unifying language that deals with shared injustice. And I guess one of my 
sort of concerns in the column going forward is to help a bit, and with a book I'm trying to write, uh, is to help a bit in this. Another thing that I'm concerned about is the role of both moderates and progressives and the fact that I believe that at this moment in our politics, they are natural allies. It's not just that they need each other to win an election, but I think there are critiques that the left brings forward that moderates need to listen to about injustices in the economy. And I think there are critiques that moderates bring forward that progressives need to listen to, such as we want universal coverage too. Please don't tell us that we're sellouts if we don't support single payer. And I think we need a dialogue between those two, those two sides. And then lastly, you brought it up. It's been an interest of mine for a long time. I really do want a better language for our country around religion and values. And I've written about that before, and that's certainly something I'll continue to write about. Finally, I'd like to ask a question that we ask all of our guests, which is, um, you've mentioned a few of them, but are there any other books or papers or articles or podcasts even that people uh, should look to if they were interested in our conversation today? You know, in terms of podcasts, I'm a big fan of Ezra Klein. I've always said proudly that uh, in our class that you're a part of, uh, one year, many years ago, I decided, wait a minute, I'm not paying enough attention to online uh, stuff. And so I brought in two young bloggers, a 23-year-old blogger at the American Prospect called Ezra Klein and a 23-year-old blogger at the Atlantic called Ross Douthat. And so I always like to say that our class was way ahead mm -hmm. of the mainstream media. Um, so I am, uh, um, so I would say, you know, uh, I would say I'm a big fan of Ezra. There are a lot of, I, I feel badly because I am, I, I listen sporadically to podcasts and, uh, one of my objectives for the year is to learn more. I have my, fortunately my, uh, there are many values, uh, sounding like a person who teaches at a Catholic university. There are many values to having children. Uh, -huh. uh one of them is they teach you a lot. And so my kids, I count on my kids to help me on that front. Books. There are so many books I love. Maybe I could talk just about books that were extremely important to me, uh, when I was young. One is a old history book that's still in print, that was given to me by one of my high school history teachers. And it's a book by a historian called William Luchtenberg, Franklin D. Roosevelt, The New Deal. It is still, for my money, one of the best one-volume uh, books about the New Deal. And it really had a huge effect on my own politics. Uh, it got me very excited about what Roosevelt achieved. And it's both very shrewd and very well-written. Second book that also changed my view when I was a very young person, I was in a religion class at my Benedictine school, and we could pick any religious book that we wanted to write a book report on. And this was in the middle of the civil rights years. It was probably 66, 67. And I picked Martin Luther King's collection of sermons, Strength to Love. And I think all of us would do well to go back to Martin Luther King's sermons and speeches. I had the great joy. I happened to be in Memphis for a talk recently, and visited the Civil Rights Museum, which is set in the motel where King was assassinated. And it, it, it is, King's witness is so powerful. Um, and he was a more radical thinker than we often say now. We've kind of seen, you know, it's a great thing that we honor him across the board. 
but we've sort of taken some of the militancy out of him. And I think we need to take our king whole, both the king who really did believe in conversion and really was a unifying figure, but also the king who spoke out, for example, against the tranquilizing drug of gradualism and who spoke of moderates who would not stand up for civil rights in letter from Birmingham jail. And so that, for me, was extremely important. A third book I'll mention, probably the political philosopher who had the most influence on me and still is a guide in many ways is Michael Walzer. And when I was in college, I got to take one of the great classes of all times. It was only taught once. Um, and it was a debate between two of the great philosophers of the last several decades, Michael Walzer speaking for socialism. He was really speaking for social democracy and Robert Nozick, the great philosopher of libertarianism, and they had a semester-long debate called Capitalism and Socialism. And Nozick gave me a great respect for how libertarians think, um, but Walzer is the person who won my heart. And there was a collection, there were a lot of great collections of his essays. There's an old one I like called Radical Principles. There's a more recent book called Politics and Vision, um, his, one of his famous books, you know, philosophically important books is called Spheres of Justice. But I always try to get students to rediscover Walzer because I think he's a very sensible person who tried to combine, sensible but also extremely sophisticated, who tried to combine the insights of liberalism in the broad sense with the insights of social democracy and democratic socialism in a way that uh, he is constantly, he's a balanced thinker, and he's also somebody who cared about a lot about civil society and institutions outside of government that I think progressives need to pay a lot of attention to. Conservatives talk about that more than we do, and I think we need to focus there as well. So those those are three those I'll are, offer. Yeah, those are great. Thank you very much, and thanks for your time today. Oh, great to be We're with you. Yeah, thank thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with EJ. If you're interested in hearing more podcasts, please subscribe. And if you're interested in learning more about the Georgetown Public Policy Review, please visit gppreview.com where you can read the most recent articles by our authors and check out the spring edition for our academic journal on rethinking governance. Thank you very much.